What is up, guys? So, welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA, and finally get some other news, other than just the usual drama going on. The UFC is back into the swing of things, so they're going to have three events within eight days. That is actually kind of crazy, man, because how many weeks has it been? Four, five weeks since the UFC in Brazil card, and now they're going to have UFC 249 officially in Jacksonville, Florida, which is great. Looks like that card is going to be most likely set to go. And then we also have two cards the week afterward. And those are going to be headlined by Anthony Smith versus Glover Teixeira and Alistair Overeem versus Walt Harris. Fine main events, whatever it is. I don't care what it's going to be, to be honest. I just want to see some fights. But the UFC 249 card is especially the one that everybody's looking forward to. It's absolutely crazy stacked. And I'm pretty happy it's going on. If it's going to go on, I'm all in for it. If it's not, whatever. I'm going to wait for the next one. So... You know, the people that are going to start talking about the coronavirus thing. Whatever is going on, I'm with it, man. That's just the kind of vibe I like to live with. And this is a big opportunity for the UFC. They're going to put on some of the only sporting events happening in the world right now. So hopefully a lot of people who have nothing to do, at least they're going to watch the ESPN cards where it's going to be on television. Everybody gets to watch because I understand the pay-per-view. Maybe people are not going to be buying those, especially with a lot of people out of work right now. But Whoever's going to headline the prelims, if I was a fighter right now, I'd be lobbying for the headliner of the prelim because that was going to give you the most exposure, either that or the main event of the main card. So not even co-main event, to be honest, I'd rather be the headliner of the prelims than the co-main event of any card right now at this moment. And I wonder who's going to headline the prelims of UFC 249 because I don't think it's going to be Ngannou versus Strike like it was before. At least that's what I last heard of. I think that's going to be on the main card, but I personally think it should be on the prelim. It's kind of weird too because a lot of fans, they still don't understand the whole thing about how cards are structured. They think if you're on the main card, that's more prestigious than being on the prelim. I don't know when this started. I don't know when that idea actually got into fans' minds because I personally don't think that. I never really thought that, to be honest. I always thought the headliner in the prelims was one of the best spots for any fight. So I'm still taken aback a bit when everybody says that something like Ngannou vs. Roger Strike should never be in the prelims. Being on the prelims doesn't really mean much. Actually, they get more views than the first, second, or third fight of the main card. So there's that. And in other news, we got John Jones. And I don't like talking about the whole drama stuff too much, but let's start it with this. John Jones puts out in a tweet, quote, I'm going to put it on the screen right here. It's funny to see how many MMA reporters and fighters can't go without a few episodes or interviews without discussing me. There's seriously a pandemic going on, guys. Is there nothing more important going on in your world? Unquote. Now, when you combine this with the other stuff he's been doing, such as telling Anthony Smith you should get a gun because if that was me breaking into your house, you wouldn't be able to do anything at that point. And he's doing all this after the arrest and the video comes out of him acting all innocent and stuff and just showing that he has some substance problems. Man, this is just not good. This is not good look. I mean, first of all, he's telling MMA reporters and fighters to not talk about him pretty much or why are they talking about me when there's other stuff going on? Well, here's the thing, man. MMA reporters should not be talking about the pandemic. That's my opinion. Stick to MMA, and coincidentally, John Jones has been the guy in the headlines this entire time for the wrong reasons. Getting arrested, talking this stuff on Twitter, going on social media, saying some weird stuff after the whole arrest thing. So of course people are going to be talking about John Jones. There's not much else to do. They shouldn't be talking about the pandemic so much because, first of all, they're not experts in the field. Yes, give the opinion, but at the end of the day, a lot of fans don't care. If they want to hear something about the pandemic, if they want to hear something about coronavirus and all this stuff they'll go to the actual people that know what they're talking about right not mma reporters so yeah get off the headlines if you don't like mma reporters talking about you you know don't get arrested don't do some foul things getting drunk going to a car and start shooting your gun and i think he was spinning donuts or whatever he was doing 
crazy, man. It's just crazy. And then people start feeling bad about him. And now people are like, oh, wait, this guy's just not a good person. That's what some people think, at least, right? Personally, I never buy anything John Jones does. That video that came out, I never felt bad for John Jones. I never did. Because there's some personal things that happened in my life, and I've been through and lived with people who are very similar to Jones and have had very similar run-ins like this. Has lied even worse, trying to make it more convincing. So I've already been through this with people in real life. And when I saw the video, I knew, no, man, no. I've seen this dozens of times already, right? I know when someone's not being truthful or when someone's just trying to get out of trouble. And going right into social media and saying the stuff he says afterward kind of confirmed it to a lot of people, man. And that is why I never felt bad for the guy. I was just waiting for him to say something afterward because I know that it's what he's done before too. It's what he's done before, after the hit and run thing, after crashing his car the first time, you know? It's always something coming out afterward. And he tries to make good eye for the general public, for the casual fans more because the hardcore fans are in the know a little bit more. The casual fans are a lot easier to dupe. They're a lot easier to trick and create a narrative for them to run with. And John Jones is pretty good at doing that. The hardcore fans, you'd probably be very surprised actually how many casual fans don't know much about John Jones outside of the fighting, right? They don't know many of these stories. Hardcore fans know all of it, right? They pretty much know everything that has happened or at least the reporters have put out in MMA. Casual fans, a lot of them don't know it. And then going on Twitter where all the hardcore fans are watching, and puts out some tweets and stuff like that, that he's gonna go and put out his actual thoughts. Now, I just wanna go and say, not everything John Jones has done is bad. You know, he's done many good things as well. Remember the thing where he chased down the robber and beat him up and stuff like that? He's an amazing fighter. Probably good in the household, probably good as a parent, probably good in all that, but the stuff that we know about and the stuff that he has made news about are pretty foul, man. And he's had many, many chances every single time he's gone to another. But yeah, right when he made that tweet at Anthony Smith, I know he was going at other fighters as well. It wasn't just specifically targeting Anthony Smith. But when he went at Anthony Smith and told him you should get a gun because that was me in your house, you wouldn't be able to do anything. That's kind of bad, man. That's kind of bad because it's not something to take light like that, right? His actual family could have been in danger. We don't know what was going to happen. What if this wasn't even during the coronavirus or the pandemic and Anthony Smith was out of town for some reason or whatever happened? Who would be able to do anything at that point? I understand get a gun. I know it's just easy to say that, but when you go and say if that was me in your house, you wouldn't be able to do anything, you rub a lot of people the wrong way, man. A lot of people the wrong way. That thing could have turned south very quickly. And the fact that the guy was getting hit over and over again, maybe he was on something, dude. You never know, right? If anything, you should praise Anthony Smith for handling the best he could instead of going after him, and especially after the whole arrest thing, right? Jones should be the last guy to really talk about that sort of thing. And the other thing is, Anthony Smith isn't even in line for a next title shot. He's not even on the horizon for a fight with John Jones. So it was kind of irrelevant and just disrespectful to talk about at all. And then the last drama news I want to get into is the whole Tyron Woodley thing. So Tyron Woodley is kind of bashing people, bashing the brass more, Dana White more for criticizing him after his quote-unquote boring fight with Damian Maya, but then they go and praise kind of Israel Adesanya for his quote-unquote boring fight with Romero. I don't know what he's alluding this to. Is it just he's saying that Dana White just doesn't like him? Is that what he's saying? Or they praise the golden boy in Israel Adesanya who's potentially the next big star? I don't know what it is, but here's the thing, man. Here's the difference between their boring fights and how they dealt with it afterward. I understand Woodley was injured in the Damian Maya fight. He had a torn labrum. Adesanya wasn't injured, at least to our knowledge. You never know with fighters, man. They're able to hide things, but they both reacted very different. Adesanya wasn't super defensive like Tyron Woodley, where he started blaming the fans, criticizing the fans and the brass and Dana White and everybody. Pretty much telling everybody, you should like what I'm doing. Why are you criticizing me? Adesanya, he went about a different way. He created his own narrative. He said, no, the way I fought was smart. And he kept to that. He never changed from that. He never directed his anger or his aggression to the fans or to anybody else. 
besides just a little bit of Yoel Romero for not fighting him. And then he backed off of that a little bit and said, no, wait, I fought smart guys, right? Look at Yoel Romero. You think I'm going to run into this guy? Right, I already did it and I got caught. Right, I'm not going to do the same thing. I'm going to fight smart. And a lot of fans, even though many of them still criticize him, a lot of them understood with what he was saying with his narrative and then went with it. And that was the end of it. Time where they kind of did the same thing, but then he started making excuses. I understand you have an injury, but it's best for a fighter not to talk about their injuries after a quote unquote bad performance or some criticism because it only looks like an excuse to get themselves out of that criticism. Nobody likes it, even if it's true. Nobody likes it. Never talk about it. Look at Deontay Wilder, right? He said that the whole vesting weighing 40 pounds made him tired, got his legs shaken up a bit. Even if it's true, don't talk about it, right? It's never good. It's never good for your publicity. It's never good for your career to talk about such excuses. Whenever fighters go out and say, I have no excuses, I lost, that is always the best reason. But I know almost every single time there is something going on that we don't know. Injuries, family problems, lack of sleep, whatever it is, they got sick before, whatever it is, there's usually something going on that they know about, but the fighters that just don't make the excuse and don't bring it to light are the ones that turn out the best in the fans' eyes. If Tyron Woodley said the same thing that Israel Adesanya said and said, no guys, look, I fought smart. This guy is a high-level Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artist. I didn't want to get taken down. I was winning the fight and, you know, all this sort of stuff without ever targeting the fans or the brass. It would have turned out way better for him. Way better. Now, I understand beforehand, in hindsight, Tom Woodley has a lot of baggage when it comes to being super defensive, right? So, fans are already expecting for him to say something. Adesanya has never really done that, right? Adesanya never rolls that way. He never tries to make excuses and target the fans because it looks like he interacts with the fans and he's an internet kid, right? That's what he labels himself as. So, he understands what fans like to know, what they like to see, and how they react to things because he's done the same thing. He's one of the fans. He's one of the viewers. He's one of the internet kids that watch MMA. So he understands how to deal with it a lot better. And we can all just say, man, Tyron Woodley has not dealt with it that well. He just hasn't. He's always kind of complaining about something. Even if it's little things, small things, he's always trying to find a way to complain. And nobody likes a whiner. Nobody likes someone who complains all the time. They bring such negative energy to everything. Everyone just doesn't like it. Everybody acknowledges he's an amazing fighter. He's one of the best welterweights of all time. And we praise him for trying to get into the fight with Leon Edwards. But then right afterward, he's just complaining about things again. He brings it up again. Why are you bringing up the DMI thing again? We want to forget about that. Everybody wants to forget about that whole thing. Everybody wants to forget, but then he brings it up. It's only negative energy that he brings up again, right? It's only one of the blemishes of his career in the fans' eyes, not realistically. He won the fight. He fought the way he had to. But in the fans' eyes, it was a blemish of his career that kind of took him down a notch in excitement and entertainment, and he wants to bring that up again. Why? Why would you do that? It's just terrible. It looks like maybe some jealousy of Israel Adesanya because it all wrapped around the Adesanya narrative, and then he tried to call him out after. So I don't know if this is just some plan that he wants to call out Israel Adesanya eventually fight him, but let's be honest here, man, he's a little bit far to fight Israel Adesanya. You know, he's not even the champion, right? He has to go up and win a couple fights. If Usman wanted to go up and fight Israel Adesanya, it can happen. Tom Woodley is not even the number one contender. So that's just not going to happen. It makes no sense. I understand. Shoot your shot. Try to get what you want. But us fans are going to look at it a little bit more realistically and say, hey, man, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't look like a good plan to go by, especially with the strategy coming off a complaining tactic, you know? So, and people will say it's a lot of Dana White's fault. It might be, man. It might be. But it didn't help when Tyron Woodley made such a defensive stance, right? And actually went after the UFC. I mean, didn't he pretty much call the fans in the UFC racist before his Wonderboy fight? And like Dana White had to go and address it. 
Not only did Dana White have to address it and it put the UFC in a very weird, awkward situation, but also put Wonderboy in a weird spot as well because he was up he was up against Woodley and he was in the same studio having an interview and Woodley's right next to him talking about how the UFC is racist or the fans are racist, that's why they don't pay attention to Demetrius Johnson and stuff like that. And Wonderboy got serious a little bit. And we all hate to see Wonderboy ever get serious. And he's like, whoa man, why do you gotta bring all this up? I'm the one fighting you. People who don't know him probably think he's some like white supremacist because Woodley's bringing race into the fight. The guy's from the South. He has the accent. People can easily go on mistaking him for that, right? When he's really one of the sweetest guys on the entire planet. And that potentially could have hurt the image of the UFC, hurt their brass, hurt their reputation. I mean, if Dana White has to personally address that, that's not good news, man. You get on Dana White's bad side. And we all know about Dana White. Not only is he in the UFC very defensive of this of the sport and of the organization, it's the reason why I can't use footage for my breakdowns, but they'll do anything to defend it. And also, Dana White holds grudges. We all know Dana. He holds grudges, and he never lets them go. And that's probably a reason he was happy when Woodley lost, and he was very happy to not give him a rematch for the title. And how could you really blame him when your champion is potentially hurting the sport and hurting your organization that you have long built up? It's pretty much Dana's baby at this point. And the only reason probably Woodley's around is because he's actually a good fighter. If he wasn't a good fighter and he was losing consistently, you think Dana White wouldn't cut him at a blink of an eye? And actually, when you think about it, it's one of the most diverse sports in the world, right? I mean, you're talking about every corner of the world is a champion in the UFC. You got Americans of all kinds. You have a Russian, you have Nigerians, you got an Australian, you got a Brazilian, you got a Chinese champion. Henry Cejudo even has ties to Central America, and they've all gotten there through hard work. Pretty much from every continent, and there's a champion for each race in existence right now. Except I would say the Middle East, right? The Middle East is the only place where it doesn't have that representative yet, but I think that's solely because the UFC hasn't tapped into it yet. Just like how China was. When the UFC finally went to China, all of a sudden all this talent came out of nowhere. But really the talent was always there, it's just we didn't know about it. I think the same thing with the Middle East right now. The Middle East is probably brewing with hardcore talent, man. And I think once the UFC expands there, it will 100% be the most diverse sport in the world. I think the only more diverse sport is probably football or soccer, depending on where you're from. So yeah, it's just craziness what Tyron Woodley was trying to do before. And that ultimately, or should I say most likely, played into the whole fact Dana White bashes on him every opportunity he gets. Remember, that whole episode, that whole thing, was way before Damian Maya. And really, Woodley gives Dana a lot of ammo, right? When Tyron Woodley makes such claims out there to hurt the brass's image, and hurt his image, when Tom really doesn't deserve necessarily anything, Dana White's not going to break his back to go and give him something, right? He's going to make it harder for him. And the UFC's done that for a long time to anybody who's made it hard for them to do anything. But when you have guys like Israel Adesanya, who works well with the brass, works well with Dana White, has a really fun style, is very marketable without complaining about everything, yeah, he's going to get a push, man. He's going to get up there. The organization wants to see him get big because it brings money to their wallet, and Adesanya benefits from all that. And it just seems like Tom Wynn's a little bit jealous at this point of Adesanya, to be honest. And people ask me, how would that fight go down? I'm going to be honest, that would be a very, very easy fight for Adesanya. He'll completely freeze up Tyron Woodley against the cage. And Tyron Woodley would not be able to hit him once clean with that right hand. And I think Adesanya finishes Tyron Woodley within three rounds. People might bring up a look how Adesanya fought you while Romero. It's a little bit different. Romero's a lot more unpredictable, a lot more powerful, and has a much better wrestling game than Tyron Woodley does. So there's a lot more to be worried about. Also... Tom Woodley backs up to the cage, and it's easy, especially for someone as long as Adesanya, to see what he's trying to do to get out of that pressure, right? He just throws out that right overhand, he's very good with it, but he has to cover a lot of distance, a lot of grounds, to catch Adesanya with that punch. 
I think behind jabs, just picking at him the entire time, similar to what Rory McDonald did, that's exactly what Adesanya would do, but at a much more dangerous level. And now let's get to the questions here. We're going to go right to the YouTube questions. The most liked comment is going to come by John Wayne LSD 25 Okay, Weasel, got a good one for you. Lightweight UFC fighter versus heavyweight bodybuilder. A friend and I were watching the Juice Had Turkey scene of Conor McGregor's press conference, and when Floyd's two bodyguards were exchanging words with Conor on stage, calling him a skinny bitch, my friend argued that Conor would have been smashed by either one of those guys because of their size. I argued that Conor's superior fighting skills would immobilize both of them. If a physical altercation were to take place, can you please give your take on this and put this debate to rest. I feel this question would shed some light on the skill versus size debate. Side note, the question broadly applies to any top UFC lightweight, Habib, Tony, Gaethje, and so on. Looking forward to the next podcast. Keep killing it. The great content. Thank you so much, man. Interesting question. I love talking about this sort of thing because it's the biggest misconception that casual fans or people don't know fighting that well will make. They'll say size trumps all, but that only works in their world because they don't understand the skill. Skill trumps size almost every single time. When size really matters is when the skill level is more equal. But again, casual fans or people don't know much about fighting don't understand how much skill actually matters because they don't have a necessary concept of skill. It's like this. Think about a skyscraper being a million feet high. You really cannot even picture it because it's so outlandish. It doesn't work in your world because you've never seen anything like that. Same thing with skill in a street fight against a bigger man. This is a main reason why I like to see more open weight fights, right? Because it, it sheds some light on how much skill actually matters. But when we see guys with the same weight fighting each other all the time, people don't understand what would happen if they get out of that weight class. What happens if they go up three, four weight classes and fights a bigger guy? Allah, look what happened to BJ Penn versus Lyoto Machida. I like to see stuff like that. BJ Penn fighting 50 pounds less of a weight class than Lyoto Machida. And they go up against each other and BJ Penn was very successful in that fight. Shocking, right? BJ Penn's also fly at 145, while Lyoto mostly fights at 205. Or another insane example is when Melvin Manhoof knocked out Mark Hunt in like less than a minute. Melvin is a very small guy compared to Mark Hunt. Mark Hunt outweighs him nearly 80 pounds. Mark Hunt's a little bit taller. He outweighs him by 70, 80 pounds. They fight 80 pounds apart, yet Melvin Manhoof knocks him out with one punch, moving backwards. And at that point, Mark Hunt had a solid chin on him. One of the greatest chins we've ever seen in combat sports. A guy who ate head kicks from Miracle Crow Cop. Yeah, he gets knocked unconscious by one punch from this small guy. When you actually see these fights happen, it opens up your world more. And that example is even crazier because they're both very skilled in striking, right? The gap in skill isn't even that far apart. If you say Melvin's more skilled, if you say Mark Hunt's more skilled, they're very close in technique. But Mark Hunt had the size advantage, quote-unquote size advantage, yet Melvin Manov goes and knocks him out. Shilsani usually likes to say that size is actually a disadvantage. The bigger you are, it's actually a disadvantage when you're fighting a smaller man. I won't necessarily go there, but you can be much, much smaller, still be somewhere equal in skill, and still be able to beat them, 100%. And if that's true, a guy who's much smaller, yet having infinitely times more skill, how do you think that's going to go down then? So, talking about the bodyguards and Conor McGregor, I'll say individually. So, Conor individually would starch either of them. Pick one, Conor starches them, no problem at all. Very easy. They'll be one of the easiest fights Conor has ever come across, and that includes Josie Heldo. And how would he go about this? Well, okay, those bodybuilders. First of all, can they punch? Most people who have never trained can't really throw a proper punch. And if you can't throw a proper punch, you can't put power into your strike. If you can't put power into your strike, how are you going to deliver the knockout that you want? It doesn't matter how big you are necessarily. Yes, they have a lot of force, but they don't know necessarily how to throw it out there, right? 
Think about it like this. If you're going to go and bench press, for an example, bench press, you need the right form and the right technique to do it properly. But if you don't have the right form, do you actually have the strength to display how much you can lift? No. Let's say you have the potential to bench press 250 pounds one time, a max bench, but your arms are above your shoulders and like in front of your face instead of in front of your chest. And you're trying to do it that way because you don't have the right form. One arm is pushing more than the other. You're not going to be benching 250. It's the same thing with punching in a sense. You need the right form and technique to deliver the power. You might have potential to punch as hard as Francis Agano, let's say, but if you don't have the right technique, you're not going to be able to deliver that kind of power. So that's number one. No matter how big these bodybuilders are, no matter how big these bodyguards are, they're most likely not even going to hit as hard as Conor McGregor. And also power is force times speed. Even if they have more force because of their body weight, Conor has much more speed. So even if they have the same technique, Conor still has enough power to knock out anybody in the world with one punch, especially the untrained chin. So that's number two. Guys who have never got hit before or sparred before or got punches thrown at them, they don't know how to tense up or defend punches, which means if you don't have to tense up for a punch, you're going to get knocked out a lot easier, especially if someone fakes something at you and throws with that left hand. So let's say they show their right, like Conor does to professional fighters, and they fall for it. Shows that right to one of these bodyguards, gets them to take the bait, they kind of flinch away from it a little bit and put their hands forward. Connor's kind of come right over the top as they weaken their tense up and catch them with the left hand. Night, night, no matter who it is. Number three, do they have the cardio? Can they fight Connor for five minutes? Because if Connor wanted to go out with the strategy of playing cat and mouse with the bigger man, can he chase him around and try to land something for five minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes? Connor can do that. If Connor wants to stretch it out as long as he can, he can do that. And gas out the bigger man, that'll be the easiest way to go about this, to be honest. Guarantee the bodyguard is going to throw everything he has, trying to catch the smaller, faster guy, miss all his punches, miss all of his attempts to grab onto Connor, and it will last for, what, 40, 50 seconds, maybe one minute. As Connor's just fresh, he didn't even do anything yet, and now he's getting started, now picking at the slower guy that doesn't even have his power at this point, and doesn't have the ability or the cardio to tense up for punches, making it a lot easier to knock him out. The other thing is, does he have the intelligence to pace himself? If Connor starts playing that cat and mouse game, does the bigger guy know, oh wait, maybe he's trying to bait me into things? Most likely not. Most likely he's trying to headhunt and take out this guy. That's what everybody does, right? That's not properly trained. There's even videos of guys who go into gyms, hard spar, practically fight with some of the martial artists there, and they do the exact same thing. They drag them to deep waters and bait them into pretty much submission on the feet. Here goes the other thing. If they're actually bodybuilders, bodybuilders in general who have never been trained before in martial arts, they don't have the dexterity or they don't even have the ability to perform the correct technique because of how their lifestyle pretty much is when it comes to lifting heavy weights. Lifting heavy weights consistently on a daily basis is going to hurt your ability to throw strikes. It just is. You need the flexibility in your punches and your kicks and your strikes and your movement to deliver the necessary kind of power. Look at all the fighters. Very, very few amount of fighters are bodybuilder level. Very few. Not even Francis Ngannou. I don't even count him as a bodybuilder. Ngannou can be pretty lean out there, to be honest. He has very lean muscle. Yes, he's a big guy, naturally. Big frame, big skeletal system. But he's not a super massive guy like the Mountain or even some of these bodybuilders, right? They're more wide than anything. None of them really have that kind of look. Unless it's absolutely natural. Then let's go to this. What if they grabbed Connor? Because that is the most dangerous part when facing a bigger man who doesn't know what he's doing. He still has a lot of strength because of the way he lifts. He does have a lot of strength when he grips onto you. But again, what can you do? What can the bigger man do? Honestly, he's going to lift Connor up and throw him like a ball. Well, Connor's not an animate object where he just allows anything to happen. The human body 
is very complex. It moves in very weird ways, especially when you know how to. Look at, for example, I know a lot of people don't want to point it out because they think that the mountain wasn't doing anything to Connor. He was taking it very easy, which I debunked. Connor light sparring with the mountain. The mountain did grab him. He was trying a lot of things. He was trying to push down Connor's wrist. He was trying to do a lot of things. And Connor was just able to get his hands off the grip, able to break the grip, able to get out of those. And he only got put in those positions because Connor was messing around and throwing kicks and stuff to the body. In an actual fight, he would never even do that. He was just messing around, light sparring, kind of a warm up sort of thing that you do. Again, people have to know light sparring is pretty much a warm up. It's nothing to take really seriously. It's just move around, mess around, try certain things, and that's it. Then they go into the real stuff. And people will say that the mountain wasn't trying. Why did the mountain gas out in 40 seconds? If you're not trying, you're not gassing out because the point of gassing out, the point of cardio exhaustion is usually met when you expend energy. So saying that the mountain is going to gas out in 50 seconds, let's say, we'll give him 50 seconds. I forgot exactly how long it was. It was under a minute for sure. He gasses out 50 seconds by messing around. What if he tried? 20 seconds? Is he done? 30 seconds? Is he done? So that kind of goes against the argument. If he has 30 second cardio, man, that's really bad for fighting. That's no matter who you're fighting. You could fight Demetrius Johnson. You could fight even a woman. You can even fight one of the pro female fighters. That's going to be a bad day for you if you're gassing out 20, 30 seconds. So you still need the technique in the grappling exchanges to do anything. You can't just pick someone up and bend them like you want and all this sort of stuff. That just doesn't work because they move around in ways you don't even comprehend. It's actually very easy to break wrist control on someone who doesn't know how to hold on to it or use it to advance to another position right away. And takedowns themselves. If one of these bodyguards grab onto Connor, Connor can go and take them down. It's all about technique. It's all about balance. They don't know how to keep their balance, right? If Connor goes and grabs a single leg, how are they necessarily going to balance? If Connor goes under, what are they going to do to stop him? They might sprawl. Maybe they don't sprawl. Maybe they just, maybe they try to push Connor's head down or they don't even see it coming. What are they going to do to hold their balance at that point? If Connor goes on for an ankle pick, a double leg, a single leg. All of these different techniques require different kind of technique and balance. You don't balance the same way for every single takedown. The balance for a single leg, it's a lot different than the balance for a double leg because a single leg is very effective against bigger fighters. Very effective against bigger fighters. And the reason for that is you break down them one by one, step by step, technique by technique. So it's not just one explosion like the double leg is. The double leg in MMA or in fighting is a very effective takedown when it comes with countering something that they're doing or catching them unexpected because it's one giant movement, usually, not always, usually the blast double, giant explosion to get them to the ground, blasting through their legs and hips. The single leg is a lot more technical because there's a lot more steps and it's not one giant explosion. It's literally chopping down the balance and the foundation of a bigger man. That's really what it is. Ankle pick is in a similar way too. Most likely they'll never get to that position. But uh, just saying if they did get there, they couldn't do a thing. They couldn't do a thing to McGregor. They don't know how to. They don't know how to apply their strength there as well. We're going to do lift Connor in the air. There's many techniques to stop someone from lifting you. It doesn't even require strength. Many techniques. First of all, how are they going to lift them? Where are they going to grab them? Secondly, if they go and grab wherever they need to, how are they going to stop the distractions and the interruptions of Conor McGregor? What are they going to do to stop him from getting out of it? Because Conor's going to be working immediately. Unless they know what they're doing initially when they go for an attack, Conor's already going to be working to get out of it before they even get started to lift up or do whatever they wanted to do when they grabbed onto Conor. Conor's already on the move. He already knows what's going on. While they're just working their way through and reacting their way through. So, yeah. Connor blasts through either of them. And even if he fought both of them at once, I'd still probably put my money on Connor McGregor, to be honest. Because, again, if he could drop one of them with one punch, he beats both of them. If it takes one punch from him to drop one of them, this is over. He'll beat both of them easily. Very easily. They can't catch him. 
They don't know how to track down his footwork. They don't know how to track down his movements. They don't know about baiting and fainting and all this stuff. They'll be kind of playing into traps the entire way and kind of just blasting them, right? Even if Connor runs at them and throws his left hand at them, what are they going to be able to defend it? Do, do, they, do they even have the ability and knowledge to defend someone throwing a big left straight at their head or big left overhand at their head? Do they even have the knowledge or the experience to defend that, right? If you can't even defend that, you're not going to be able to fight Conor McGregor. And here's the thing, man. For anybody who talks about size and saying that a fighter, because he's so small, will lose to anybody bigger, I really have a challenge for them to go into any gym. Spar with someone that is smaller than much smaller. I'm talking about, so let's say someone who is 190, 200 pounds. Spar with someone who fights at the flyweight division. It's not going to turn out well. You can go and spar with a bantamweight female. It's not going to turn out well. It just is. That's the best way to have people understand it. Right? If they have the first-hand experience of how much skill matters. And that's kind of their entry point into understanding skill and techniques. Great question, man. Great question. And then we go to Mauro Medrado. What is more likely to happen? Number one, Habib pissing hot for steroids. Two, Connor becoming the double champion again, welterweight and lightweight. Number three, John Jones versus DC, a heavyweight. Number four, Habib versus Tony in 2020. Again, for the planet's sake, that should not happen, but... If I were to have to answer this, I say number four, Habib versus Tony, is the most likely thing to happen. The other three, I do not see happening at all. By the way, great job on the channel, man. Wishing you well from Brazil. Shout out to Brazil, man. And thank you so much for the question. And then we go to Yellow Gamer. How do you see a matchup with Dustin Poirier and Charles Oliveira going? By the way, I love the channel. Keep up the great work, Weasel. Thank you so much, man. So I think it's actually a really good fight. They both can hurt each other on the feet. Both very good on the feet. Very good timing. Very good power. Dustin Poirier is better with his combinations, and he's better with putting on pressure. Charles Oliveira, I'll say, is a better counterpuncher and better completely with his kicks. His kicks are much better than Dustin Poirier's overall. They're going to be opposite stances, although Oliveira will switch at times. On the ground, Oliveira destroys Poirier. On paper, I probably say Oliveira has an advantage, but the experience and the pressure and the volume might get to him, and that's why I'm going to go with Dustin Poirier. Poirier is a better chin at lightweight. I think he might lose like the first two rounds, but then he starts to pick up on what Oliveira is trying to do, gets used to his methods, and then eventually tears him down punch by punch, starts to wither away Oliveira in an absolutely great fight and finishes him off in like the third, fourth round. And you have to look at the problem Kevin Lee had where he started to address it in the third round, and that was he wasn't letting his hands go. If you let the volume go and let your hands go against Charles Oliveira, you do have much more success because you don't allow him to pace the fight. You don't allow him to pick at you because Oliveira is more of a sniper. And nobody does that better than Dustin Poirier. Poirier has some of the best combinations and volume punching in the entire division, right? So that thing that made Kevin Lee a bit successful in the third round is something Poirier is going to be able to do the entire fight. If we go to Alexa in the wild, with Dominic Cruz looking like he's going to fight Triple C, how do you see that fight playing out with his long layout from Dominic? Can he come back and do what he did against TJ Dillashaw back in Boston? I don't think so. I don't think, to be honest. This is a whole different fight. Very different style. TJ didn't really try to wrestle too much, or at least as much as Cejudo's going to try. And can Cruz stop that? I don't think he can. Maybe with the footwork. Maybe with the patterns, because Cejudo does fight in straight lines. But Cejudo pressures a lot, so that could possibly run into strikes. I think early on, actually, Cruz is going to have more of an advantage. Because he's going to do what he usually does, and Cejudo's going to have to adapt to it. And we know Cejudo's very good at doing that. He's very good at adjusting. And I see a lot of wrestling coming from Cejudo. The striking's not going to work too much. It just isn't the short reach, the linear stance, the linear style of attacks is just going to be very hard to fight someone who gets off their center line with everything they do. So I see a lot of wrestling, to be honest, waiting for Cruz to come in. Maybe try to blast him with that right hand as Cruz does enter. Something he does a lot, which I don't really like too much, uses that right hand or goes to the double leg. It's going to be a tough fight. It's going to be a close fight, in my opinion. 
because Cruz has shown before that layoffs don't affect him that much. But this is the longest layoff of his career, right? He's never had a four-year layoff. Last time was three years, and then after that was a one-year. Uh, so can he do what he did to TJ? Possibly. I don't think he's going to be able to do that. If Dominic Cruz wins, I do see it being a little bit more decisive than when he fought TJ Dillashaw. If Sohudo wins, I see it being more of a domination after like the first round. Man, I just don't like the whole thing that Dominic Cruz does where he like triples up his jab to get in close. And then he tries a combination while he's a little bit too close to exit away. It's kind of like, you got it in close for what? You know, <laughs> like you got in close to land these punches. But Cruz is such a long fighter. He's going to be so much bigger and longer than Triple C. I cannot believe I just called him Triple C. <laughs> he's going to be so much bigger than Sohudo. If he gets in close, he's going to meet power, man. And Sohudo brings so much power and speed into his strikes. He has that explosion from his wrestling. Cruz is not going to be able to scramble with Sohudo for sure. So if he gets in close like he does, man, triple jabs or hooks to get in close and to exit away after all that, the entries are going to put him in very troubling situations. Then we go to Michael Albare. Best physical specimens of each division. Heavyweights and Ganu. Light heavyweight, I might say Tiago Santos. He's very athletic. Crazy fast for a big guy. Middleweight is definitely Yoel Romero. Welterweight, I'd probably say Kamaru Usman. The way his body works doesn't make sense. He's so big and muscular and has like no body fat. Yeah, his cardio is off the charts. It makes no sense. Lightweight, I might say Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee is very big, very strong, very athletic. If someone else who had a better mindset for the sport had his body, they'd be unstoppable in the lightweight division. You see how long his reach is? His shoulder width and his arms are so wide and long. It's crazy. He's only 5'9". He has like a 77-inch reach. Featherweight. Is there a specimen of featherweight? Maybe Volkanovski. He's a pretty big guy, pretty solid guy everywhere. And he has crazy cardio as well. Bantamweight, maybe Song Yadong. Also, Muller Marais is a specimen as well. Flyweight is probably Davidson Figueiredo. <laughs> and then the women are a little bit different. Very, very few amount of them look like their physical specimens. Not even Amanda Nunes. She doesn't even look like it. She doesn't have a body or she doesn't look like someone who is so powerful. But she is. It's crazy to look at that. Maybe Holly Holm. Holly Holm is very physical. Shevchenko, kind of. She's not big or anything, but she's very lean and muscular. And you have Jessica Andrade. What to say about her? Her body, just like Kamaru Usman, makes no sense how it works. And then we go to German Klar. After Habib beat RDA in 2014, he got injured a few times and was out for two years. But let's say if he hadn't got injured and remained active, how do you think the lightweight division would have looked from that point until now? Let me look at Habib's career. What happened after that? So yes, he defeated RDA in 2014. He took two years off, almost exactly two years off, and fought Daryl Horcher. So a tune-up fight, which really doesn't put him anywhere else. So you can actually say for two and a half years, he got nowhere. For two and a half years, he got nowhere until he fought Michael Johnson as the headliner of the prelim. And that kind of put everything together with Conor McGregor in the first place. So who was the champion in 2014? Was that Benson Henderson? Because when he fought Michael Johnson in 2016, the champion was Eddie Alvarez. He already knocked out RDA. RDA beat Anthony Pettis prior. Pettis beat Benson Henderson. and But Henderson was a champion for a while. No. Wow, really? Benson Henderson lost in 2013. So Pettis was the champion in 2014. Lost in 2015 against RDA. So, Habib beats RDA. I think by that point, I don't know how the rankings were. I don't know who was ranked at that point. But Habib, for sure, on that path, would have gotten a title shot by the end of 2015. Because if you look at it, he got nowhere in two and a half years. He beats RDA. Let's say right after RDA, he goes and fights Michael Johnson. How long did it take from after beating RDA, skipping Dara Horcher, to go on and get the title or fight for a title? Beats Michael Johnson, Ezra Barboza, and then fights for a title against Ali Quinta. Took him two fights to get to a title shot. So I will say for sure, 
In April of 2014, coming off a win against RDA, he would fight for a title in 2015, probably the beginning of 2015. Get two more fights, middle of 2014, end of 2014, fights Anthony Pettis for the title. So I think Habib will be the champion, wins the belt against Anthony Pettis, dominant fashion, completely destroys him. Might actually make Anthony Pettis never the same again and completely change his career for the worse. We would absolutely call Habib an all-time great at that point. Because without getting injured from 2014 on, we're talking about six years of activity, of fighting two, three times a year. And let's say he never loses, because at that point, everybody who fought for the belt until Habib got it, who honestly would have beaten him, right? Who would RDA fight? RDA fought Don Cerrone. Would Don Cerrone beat Habib? I actually think it would be a tough fight. I think Habib would win for sure, but it would be more competitive than people think. But again, Donald Cerrone doesn't show up for the big night, just like when he fought RDA for the belt. So Donald Cerrone, he fights Eddie Alvarez. He was shame Eddie Alvarez as well. So at this point in real life, Eddie Alvarez was the champion and he fought Conor McGregor, which means in this hypothetical situation, Habib goes and fights Conor for the first time. And we know how that fight's going to go down. Well, we know for sure at this point, Habib will be regarded as the greatest lightweight of all time because he matched the record for title defenses. He has beaten stronger competition than any UFC champion in the lightweight division's history. And possibly this brings down, knocks Conor back down to the featherweight division, possibly, because Conor went up to lightweight fought for the belt, uh, but this will be after Conor fought Nate Diaz. All right, who knows if Conor stays a lightweight or not, whatever. After that, Tony Ferguson and Relev got the interim belt when he beat Kevin Lee, but instead of the interim belt, Tony Ferguson, in this hypothetical situation, fights Habib for Habib's next title defense. Oh, that puts something very interesting. Habib versus Tony would happen, most likely if it wasn't cursed. So Habib fights Donald Cerrone as his first title defense, fights Eddie Alvarez for his second, fights Conor for his third, then he fights Tony Ferguson. Wow, it's almost the same as it is now. <laughs> like, And that's a tough fight to call. Let's say, for argument's sake, Habib wins. Now, a very interesting thing happens. 2017. What else happened in 2017 later on? GSP fought Michael Bisping in November. Instead of fighting Michael Bisping, would GSP set its sights on Habib having a four-tile defense record in the lightweight division undefeated and it was regarded as one of the greatest fighters of all time. I'm pretty sure GSP at that point would switch his target to Habib and go down a lightweight. So after Tony Ferguson, Habib goes and fights George St. Pierre. One of the biggest fights of all time. Habib beats Tony early 2017. At the end of 2017, in November, on that same card, UFC 217, he fights GSP as the main event. Man, the sport would have been crazy at that point. Oh man, that would have been way better. That would have been way better, man. Habib never got injured. We've already seen the GSP fight. Hopefully have saw the Tony Ferguson fight. Habib might get a rematch against Conor McGregor in 2018. We'll say that goes on again. Beats him again. Dustin Poirier, 2019. And at that point, who would he fight? Justin Gaethje? And then def- and then probably retires after. He would clean out most of the division, as well as going on and, for argument's sake, defeat GSP. Most likely would retire at this point. The only reason the Tony fight didn't happen this year is because it's cursed. If it was Justin Gaethje versus Habib, because Habib already beat Tony Ferguson, the fight would probably happen. None of this would happen. The coronavirus probably would never have broke out because Habib is fighting Justin Gaethje instead of Tony. And he'd probably retire this year, to be honest. Wow, that's crazy to think about. Next question, we go to Orlando Hernandez. Hope you're doing well, Weasel. A couple questions I have. Habib versus Damian Maia at 170, who wins? And Conor versus Zabit in a five-round fight at 145, who wins? Habib versus Damian Maia at 170. Habib destroys Maia on the feet. But never hit the ground. Unless Habib wanted to go to the ground, and Habib just outstrikes Maya the entire fight. And then Conor versus Sabita in a five-round fight. That's a good fight, man. They're both probably going to gas out midway through. Sabita, I think, is a better fighter for the first two rounds than Conor is. He's bigger, he's longer as well, he's faster. 
He has way better grappling, way better takedowns. His boxing is really good as well. He's very hard to hit. His kicks are eons ahead of Connor's. Connor's movement is a little bit better. Connor's better at pacing himself. It'd be a good fight regardless, but I probably lean Zabit. Oh, wait, actually, Connor's cardio at 145. I, I forgot it's 145. At 155, I probably lean Zabit. At 145, Connor has better cardio there, so I go with Connor at 145. I personally think Connor 145 is the best version we've ever seen. Hard to tell at this point with the 170 thing, but compared 155 to 145, Connor had better cardio. He had knockout power. He was very fast. He kicked a lot more, a lot better movement. It just seemed like his added on weight on fight night made him a little bit more stationary, which I don't like, and a little bit more reliant on his power. Laney Lena. Hey Weasel, is Tony the most mistreated person in history of martial arts or maybe in pro sports? Tyron Woodley has entered the chat. No, I'm kidding. In my opinion, Tony has earned a title shot in December 2015 with his great win against Edson Barboza. He was on a seven fight win streak. I remember this. He was on a seven fight win streak, which is enough in nearly every single division to earn a title shot. RDA was a champion. Cowboy lost against him. Habib was out. Alvarez was three and one in his record when he got his title shot. He got played by his management when they gave it to Connor, and from that day, it was all about Connor, money, Habib, money, and Connor, Habib, money. We talking about five years where he had to fight other guys, had to wait, fight other guys, got stripped for no reason, fight some more guys, and so on. Even now, they want Connor versus Habib, and I think they hope Tony loses or gets hurt. That's about five years of 12 wins, less money, and not nearly enough appreciation. Totally sad. Props to you from Germany. All up to Germany, man. So... You said it very well. People forgot about that. I personally forgot about that. But at the day, man, in real time, when Tony didn't get his title shot after that Edson Barboza win, fans were going crazy about it. Because when Alvarez got it, people were like, how does Alvarez deserve it over Tony at that point? And after Alvarez wins, Connor gets it up over Tony Ferguson. Even with Tony getting injured here and there, it doesn't matter. The guy earned it. When he comes back, he should get the title shot. And he just has to keep on winning. Clearing out the division. He's cleared out the division more than the champions have. In a way, he is the actual cha He's doing the duties of a champion. He's like the guy behind the scenes that's taking out everybody. And the saddest part about it is he's not getting paid much. I already talked about it before. Tony Ferguson is not getting paid. As he should. Like, he's an elite championship level fighter. He's one of the best fighters in the world. But he doesn't get paid like he is. Rose Namajunas gets paid more than him. I understand Rose is a champion. No no discredit to anybody. I'm just saying, Tony is at such a high level. He should be getting paid than most fighters for sure. When Justin Gage, who was never a UFC champion, gets paid more than Tony Ferguson. While Tony has more wins in the UFC than Justin Gage has fights in the UFC. Yet the guy gets paid more than Tony. I don't fault the organization, to be honest. I don't fault the UFC for that. Because they're going to do what they can do to earn more money or save more money. It's up to the manager. Tony Ferguson's manager, man, that guy, whoever it was, I don't know if guy, girl, like I said before, man, open that spot up. People need jobs. People could do it probably better. He should not be making less than 500 grand every single fight, not less. And that should have happened fights ago. That should have happened when he won the interim belt. From there on, he should have never have made less than 500 grand. And that doesn't include anything else. That doesn't include Reebok. So he should get more. The fact that his show money is under 200,000 is just so sad. It's just so sad. And he fights like once a year, or twice a year. So you can go on and say, Tony is probably the most mistreated person in the history of martial arts. But it's very similar to what Chil Sonnen talks about. And Nate Diaz has talked about. How are you going to earn more money when you have guys who will take it for free? right? When, we, when you have guys who will offer themselves off to fight for free. How are other fighters going to negotiate for more money when they could just go to those guys? Tony had that mindset and he talked about it before when he fought Edson Barboza, when he fought those guys earlier. And they were denying him title shots or 
He wasn't even in consideration. He was like, you know what? I'm going to make him put me up for a title shot. I'm going to make him choose me. I'm going to clean out everybody. I'm going to fight everybody. That was his mentality. He said that before. He said he's going to beat everybody until they can't deny him. But when you do that, that's so much time, so many fights of you not getting paid. And also you being mistreated by your management. And you can even save the organization to a point. In a way, yes, it's good for pride. I guess pride of a fighter. But it's not intelligent business-wise. Chill Sonnen should have had a talk with Tony before, man. And ultimately, when you do that sort of thing, like Donald Cerrone, Tony Ferguson back in the day, when you do that sort of thing and you just keep fighting for less money, you don't allow the fighters to raise up their pay. And because you don't allow fighters to raise up their pay, the tides never rise. The standards never go up. Because when one fighter gets paid more, it makes it more possible for other fighters to also get paid more or negotiate for something that's more possible and the organization also gets more lenient to pay other fighters tony's been fighting with a very similar amount of money every single fight for like five fights straight it's crazy and he's fought for the belt he's fought number one contenders over and over again he's fought former champions yet the guy gets paid less than the number four contender number five contender it's crazy man it's crazy to think about it, it makes you sad and tyron really wants to complain at least Tyron makes a bunch of money off of every fight. At least he was able to make it through a title shot in the first place and get the fight and actually go on and win and get title defenses and all that stuff. If Tony's not going to complain, nobody should be complaining. I don't want to see anybody complain if Tony's not complaining. He has the right to complain to a point. You could also say it's his fault, but I don't know. It's just such a messy situation for such a great fighter. This is an interesting question. So we go to Yoel Romero. If you were to make a movie about MMA, who would you pick as the main character? I would like to watch one about Lee Murray, the bank robber that fought Anderson Silva, or Dotsik, the crazy Russian that KO'd Arlovsky. I really don't know who those two guys are. <laughs> um, I would love to see one on Yoel Romero if they were able to get some footage back when he was young. Not just the MMA career, but talking about his wrestling career. How he was brought up from Cuba. How he came here. The whole Olympic system that he went through that was absolutely insane when you hear about it. His path to the UFC. His neck injury. Everything behind the scenes. His crazy stories with Jorge Masvidal and clubs and stuff. Like, I would love to see one about you all. Romero. He's older too, so there's probably a lot to cover. Talking about Jorge Masvidal, he's one as well. Fedor would be a very interesting one. He's so mysterious, but I can tell just by the look in his eyes. Man, that guy's gone through a lot of stuff. He's seen probably a lot of crazy stuff in his day. Doesn't talk about it. Just like a lot of Russians too. You know, Habib is another one. Habib is a very interesting story. Coming up in Dagestan at the poorest time of their history, or of their modern history at least. How his dad pretty much saved all the kids and all that stuff that happened there. How he got into the UFC, how he became such a phenom. His sparring in the gym, his loyalty to his family. Everything that comes into that would be very cool to watch. There's a lot of fighters, man, because a lot of fighters have a lot of stories behind them. They have a lot of things that they have gone through. Francis Ngannou would be very interesting. A kid in Cameroon digging in sand mines. The street fight stuff that has gone on. About his dad that he was like some legendary street fighter and came all the way to France to pursue his dream. He was homeless over there. He trained in boxing. His trainer saw that maybe he'd be good for MMA so he brought him into that. His path to America to get noticed in America to eventually fight in the UFC. When he got famous and all the stuff went into his head. Not just that, when he lost to Stevie Miocic, what kind of personal stuff did he have to deal with? Because he got scared in the Derek Lewis fight. To make a guy like Francis Ngannou scared, like the things that the demons or whatever went through his head, I wonder like what he was like by himself at that point. Like what did he have to go through? And now rejuvenated his career, got the confidence back in himself, all that stuff. And if he becomes champion and has that history after that, whatever goes on after he becomes champion, that would complete the story, complete the movie, right? 
Diaz brothers would be cool, yeah. Diaz brothers would be cool. And then we go to Daniel Rostero. Now that the UFC is releasing so many old fights on YouTube, I find it's crazy to see how sloppy and awkward the elite guys 15-20 years ago seem, by the standards of today at least. Do you think we look at the fighters of today the same way we do 15 years ago or so? Or is there only so much the sport can evolve anymore? Yeah, we're going to see the same thing. Um, to a point though, there is going to come a time where it kind of plateaus or the progression slows down. Because you got to think about it, the sport's young. We didn't know even mixing martial arts was a thing until obviously Bruce Lee brought that idea up, but nobody took it seriously. Everybody didn't even know what this guy was talking about. And then when we saw like Vitor Belfort do different things in a fight, we're like, oh wait, or Randy Couture, we're like, oh, maybe there's different stuff here we could put together and make an ultimate fighter instead of just who's the best individual martial artist coming from a different world. Now, compare male fighters now to five years ago. Not that big of a difference. Not that big. A little bit, but not, not too crazy. But then compare 1993 to 1998. Worlds of a difference. Completely different fighters. Imagine Ken Shamrock versus Randy Couture. Ken Shamrock would be forgotten if that fight ever happened. You know what I'm saying? Completely different worlds. So, yes, I believe as time goes on, guys like Zabit and Yair Rodriguez and these more advanced level fighters, it's not going to get too different because we're already reaching the point of maximum human potential at this point. You know what I'm saying? What Zabit is doing, what Yoel Romero is doing, this is like, you know, it's like ninja stuff at this point. Like, what else can you actually do? I'd be surprised. You know, obviously, I'm talking about my time today. I can't look in the future. People in the future might think, hey, Weasel's talking about, it's not going to get much better. Look at the fighters today. The guys that he watched, those guys were scrubs, man. Who were they? They can't do 720 heel kicks off the cage and stuff. We see that every day. Even heavyweights are throwing them at this point. Back then, we didn't even see that once. That's what's going to be in the future. Watch. Watch fans in the future going to think Conor McGregor, Habib, and Tony. Who are those scrubs? Just like a lot of fans today look at like some of the older fighters, you know, like, oh, those guys will never be able to compete today. Chuck Liddell's talking about fighting John Jones. Are you serious? Are you crazy? Even in your prime, you couldn't do anything. Like, that. that's the sort of talk that's going to happen later on, for sure. But probably not at the same kind of progression. So the next level or evolution is probably going to happen like 10 to 15 years from now. And then we go to Yamin Bubrahim. I know I pronounced that wrong. I'm so sorry. Hope everyone is doing okay. Question one. Imagine Conor McGregor with Tony's stamina. Will he have more chances to win against everybody in 155-170? For sure. You know, if he has Tony's stamina, his chances skyrocket, to be honest, because that's his biggest hole. He might actually be favored against everybody. In 155 for sure. 170, uh, it's going to be tough. Question two. What game plan should DC follow against Stipe to shut down the body shots? Stop reaching forward so much, but that eliminates some of his attacks. You know, he reaches forward with the hands, right? He likes to hand fight with both. He traps Stipe's punches and he goes over the top using a speed advantage. If you tell him not to do that, it's going to be tough because that's what he always does. That's just something he's built up his entire career. Shoot for more takedowns will probably be a big answer to this. More leg kicks. It's going to be really hard to body shot someone who's throwing leg kicks. He's going to have to get in and out more instead of staying in front of his opponent. But again, he has a short reach, so it puts him at a disadvantage. But he does have a speed advantage. So what he can do is, if he gets in, throw some combination. Hopefully get Stipe to back up. But if he doesn't, back up. Right? Don't just stand there because that's what DC likes to do. DC likes to get in, throw punches, and stay there. And that leaves him open for the body shot. But he can get in, few punches, get out, leg kick, be busy there. Tries to come in for the punches again, goes for the takedown, get Stipe to be honest. Even if it fails, whatever, he's just working to not only get away from the body shots, but set up different things from different distances and angles. So it helps him in different ways. So those are some things he should do, but I don't think he'll ever do those. I think that reaching forward thing that he does and putting his hands down, that's just natural for him. Uh, it's going to be hard for a guy his age to break those habits. Question three, have you ever thought about an Arabic version of your page to touch the Middle East and North Africa? 
If you're interested, I can help you because I think you are one of the best. It would be very interesting. Do you mean something like translation? So put the captions for, for an Arabic version? Um, I'd probably be down for that if it put some captions. I don't know how else I would do it. Like make a separate page, make a separate channel. Maybe I could just upload the same videos but with the caption or subtitles onto there. I could do something like that, you know. If you have any ideas, you can hit me up on my business email. Because I know a lot of other people around the world watch me. Most obviously are from America because I'm from here. So it's the algorithm is going to direct towards uh, Americans more. But I know a lot of Australians watch. Maybe because of sometimes I upload late over here. And it's just like the morning in Australia. So over there in the Oceania region, I have a lot of people watch me. A lot of people in the UK watch me. And even a bit in the Middle East. Recently, Russia has been really adding up. Translations for different countries. That would be very interesting. I'd be very open to that so I can get everybody included, right? And with that, we go right to the Twitter question, starting with at KSN Luke. What sport do you think shows better striking, boxing or MMA? Well, obviously, MMA because there's more striking than boxing. Boxing is just with the hands, usually. Of course, different kind of footwork and different kind of methods of getting the strikes out there, but MMA is all the strikes, pretty much. If you talk about which is more effective or which one has better technique, here's the thing, man, they're very different. They're very different. They're under different circumstances in a different arena, difference in attire, such as shoes and shorts and stuff. It's different. When people say boxers have better striking, not necessarily true. They're just different, right? Because you cannot box the same way you do in boxing than you can in MMA. If you go out there and try to box the same way in MMA, you're going to find a lot of weaknesses in your game that weren't there in boxing, obviously, right? Kicks get involved, knees, elbows, all this stuff. Even boxing combination, even boxing punches are different now because of smaller gloves, because of no shoes, difference in range. You have to adjust a lot to get into MMA, obviously. Then we go to Kevin Simmons. When are you going to do another Street Fights breakdown? Is Jones hesitant to fight Dominic Reyes again? I am not going to be able to do other Street Fight breakdowns, to be honest. Unfortunately, because it kind of breaks the YouTube guidelines. I didn't know that at first, but um, when I put up my other one, which was really fun to do, I love doing them. It's educational. It's fun. We mess around, you know. It's actually important to go through, but because it's a street fight, it's not a sanctioned combat sport. I guess it breaks the community guidelines of the of the website. Maybe I'm able to do them on other ones. Maybe if I put up a Twitch channel, you know, I could probably do them. I know Jens Pulver. I think Jens Pulver has a Twitch account and he does that too. Or at least he used to. I don't know if they change. I don't know how their guidelines are. I have no idea what's the terms of service over there. But yeah, maybe I could do that because I've been wanting to open up a Twitch channel as well. I could do podcasts there and maybe I could do other stuff there. But Jones hesitant to fight Dominic Reyes. Maybe a little bit because he's calling out Jan or he's more involved with Jan. Maybe because Jan told him he'll fist him. <laughs> no, I don't think he's hesitant. I don't think he's afraid of him. I think he's just playing around on social media. Let me go to kiwi1044. Hi, Weasel. Are you aware of the diamond step footwork technique? How is the footwork technique utilized in MMA and who does it? Is it similar to L-stepping, thinks man, and... God's blessing to you this Easter. Thank you so much, man. And same to you. So Diamond Step is actually a very basic movement for Taekwondo. And it can absolutely work in MMA. So it's pretty much moving in a diamond pattern. It also helps you switch stances. It's very good against sidekicks, right? If someone's throwing sidekicks, which is why it's used in Taekwondo a lot more. If someone's throwing out sidekicks a lot at you, it gets you off of different angles. So it can kind of slide their kick past you and you can counter. But um, in MMA, anybody use it. I think Sean O'Malley does a little bit. And I think TJ Dillashaw off the top of my head. I don't remember. I have to go back and see if he specifically does that. Is it similar to the L-step? Not necessarily. No, L-step is usually used to exit away or retreat or make an angle to get back into wherever you want to go. It's not used as more of an offensive step formation diamond step is a little bit more offensive and countering and also can get you away defensively but it's not used to completely get away from a specific 
position in the ring or cage, like the L-step is. Now there's some people who use it in a different way. Pretend there's a diamond on the floor. They would cross from left to right. Some people use it in that way. I use it, or a lot of Taekwondo use it in a way to switch stances as well as getting off on the sides more. Every side or point of a diamond, that's where they're kind of going to. They can go out with the same stance. So they're in the back side of the diamond. They kind of hop forward into the front side. They can switch stances and do that as well. And they can use that in multiple different angles. In MMA, it might be actually good for or against takedowns, to be honest. Especially if you're switching stances and doing it, but it's better to do it backwards if a takedown's coming after you, or if you're fighting a wrestler, you use it going backwards and switch as well. That throws off angles for takedowns. Now, with everything else, it's not the best thing to do because a lot of people obviously aren't throwing front kicks. They're not throwing side kicks spinning attacks, haymakers are being less utilized now. So the straight punches and setting up behind jabs is going to probably still get you in the way of those strikes, even if you use different diamond step formations. Yeah, it can work in many ways. It just depends on specific situations, just like every other technique, right? L-steps are generally good to use, for an example, but even them can get you in the way from some strikes. You know, if someone's pressuring you and they're L-stepping to their right when they're against the cage, you in orthodox stance, you could throw a spinning back kick and catch them on the way out or spinning hook kick and catch them on the way out with that as well. So there's many different things, right? It can work, absolutely. You just got to find your ways to use it and positions to use it. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure to like. Make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're listening to the audio version of this. And I'll see you guys in the next video.